When I was a teenager, I went through a, a phase with my friends where we were all about going to concerts, from the L.A. Coliseum to, to smaller venues. We just liked going to shows, the sights, the sounds, the loud music, the pyrotechnics. It's quite a spectacle, and nothing's asked of you. You don't have to do anything. You're just there to be entertained. That's what you're paying for. You leave with a memorable experience and most likely a new t-shirt. Now, these days, I pretty much have zero interest in attending live events, but I know I'm in the minority. Attending events, concerts, and shows is a big industry. In the music world alone, album sales have drastically plummeted, and most musicians, I think, these days make their money from live performances. People will pay big dollars to to get an experience they can't get anywhere else. In recent history, I think more than a few churches have picked up on this. And churches more and more these days look and feel and sound more like a, a special event. Some of the biggest churches feature arena seating. Lights are way down low. It's not like you need to read your Bible or anything. All eyes are focused on the stage, and there a type of religious show takes place. You get the same sights and sounds of a concert, and you get a a light, uplifting, humorous message. Then you leave, maybe you visit the merch store on the way out, and you're ready to do it all over again the next week. And churches like this have thousands in attendance, and they rake in millions of dollars. So how could you not call that a success? But of course, you always have to go back to the source and ask the question, what did the Lord Jesus have in mind for his church? It is his church, right? For whom he died. So is this what he intended the church to become? Is the church merely a special event you attend once a week where nothing is asked of you? You're purely a spectator and you leave unchallenged. Well, we'd say, no, this is not the picture of the church the Lord left behind. The church is not just an event or spectacle that you witness and observe. It's meant to be a family that you are intimately a part of. When the church is reduced, however, to merely a special event, there are many serious negative side effects. One side effect is that the people in the congregation next to you don't matter. Others around you in the church are incidental. You're you're not really there for them. You're there for you. You're there for the show. You don't don't know these people. You don't really care about these people. Just like at a concert, they're all like concert goers. And when the show is over, everyone just kind of disperses and scatters and goes back to their own life. And you're not there for other people. Another side effect to, to church as an event is that the vast majority of people aren't really serving or, or contributing to the church. You have a small percentage of people who will serve in ministry, but a lot of them are just paid, and most of them are like event staff, like greeters, ushers, musicians, sound and lighting tech, cashiers. And for everyone else, it's really not much for them to do. I mean, unless you can sing, play an instrument, or work a soundboard, you're not really needed. But, you know, that's okay. Nothing's expected of you but to attend and, and then give because the show's not going to pay for itself. But this whole mentality of the church as an event, along with all of its negative side effects, is thoroughly unbiblical. This is not what the Lord had in mind for his church, for which he died. 
It's something we've been studying and considering for a couple weeks now. That just what is the church? Well, the church is the body of Christ. It's his body. It's the assembly of the redeemed from all the nations knit together in one family. Sin divides. Sin divides us from God. It divides us from one another. But in his death and resurrection, Jesus opened the way for us to be reconciled to God. And he also intended to reconcile us together to one another. And so in salvation, he calls his disciples out and then he puts them all together in this thing we call the church. Word church in the Greek, ekklesia, simply means the called out ones. It's the body of those who've been called out of the world to follow Jesus, to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. But as we've been learning, the Lord just calls people out together, not alone, but together. In each generation, when he calls people out, he ties them together in the church. And so we found we are called to gather, not to scatter. But why? Why is the Lord, the Lord so concerned that, that these Christians gather often as the church well, there are some aspects of the church's gatherings that are more event-like. The preaching of the word, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper. These lend themselves to larger gatherings, and that's fine. But you have to realize that a large percentage of what the Lord intended for the church to do and to be, it can't take place if you only ever see people sitting in rows or in pews or in stadium seats. And one huge reason the Lord wanted his church to gather was to serve. It's something we learned last week from Ephesians 4. All of the saints have been equipped by the Lord to engage in the work of service, the work of the ministry. We typically think of the work of the ministry for ministers, and that's true. It's just that the Lord says every believer is a minister. All have been called by him and gifted with some spiritual gift, so that they might minister to others in the body. And only when each member serves like this, does the whole body grow and mature. <clears throat> but you see, if the church is merely a 90-minute-a-week event where people are herded into rows, and that's it, then that can't take place. And such churches condition people to be spectators, not ministers. You're supposed to just attend, and listen, give, and then leave. But that's not the Lord's recipe for the true church's growth, real growth, and witness. Instead, the Lord, he wants us to gather corporately. Yes, of course, we have a high view of that, but not to the neglect of personal relationships. The church can't become impersonal. It can't become this, this sterile event you attend. You spectate. Rather, it's meant to be a family you're a part of. This requires getting involved at a deeper, deeper level. This requires forming personal relationships with the other human beings in the room. And this requires active engagement in the work of service with your spiritual gifts. You may not be a teacher or a musician or a sound tech. But the Lord has gifted you and you are just as valuable to the body as everyone else. So you have to see yourself as a minister in a family, not a spectator at an event. 
have to see yourself as a minister in a family, not a spectator at an event. Again, we've been taking a little time out from the book of Colossians to consider some of these issues of the church recently, trying to get a better understanding of what the church is, what the church is to do. We might evaluate ourselves as a local church and grow. And this also comes in anticipation of the launch of our own growth groups or discipleship groups in January. And today we want to continue this effort by further considering the work of service. Last time we, lo- we learned the Lord has given spiritual gifts to all believers, that they all might engage in this, this work of service. But like, what exactly is that work of service? What does the Lord expect us to do? Okay, the, the church is not just an event. You can spectate, all right. You're called to participate, contribute, okay, fine. But how exactly? And what kind of mutual service did the Lord have in mind for his church? Are we just talking practical service? Like we should just mow each other's lawns and help each other move, pay some bills? I mean, that, that's all nice, but... You don't really need the church for that. You can get that from your family. You can get that from social clubs. Now, in the church, we don't neglect these practical needs because we are a family. But that's not all the Lord had in mind when it came to the church serving one another. Instead, the Lord primarily called us to gather. And he gifted us, not just so that we could meet the the practical needs of one another, but also so that we could meet the spiritual needs of one another that's not something you can get anywhere else. It's not something you can get from your unbelieving family or from your social club. And so I want you to think now about the spiritual needs of the church body. What are they? Can you identify them? What do those look like? Have you ever even thought about that? What are the spiritual needs of the church body? A couple weeks ago, I had my Wednesday night group brainstorm some spiritual needs in the body. And here's the, some of the things in the list they came up with. Marriage counseling, dealing with disobedient children, worldliness, encouragement during ill health, admonishment to be in the word, self-control, sexual purity, grief counseling, men being spiritual leaders in the home, and greater accountability. That's a great list. You could add dozens and dozens of things, spiritual needs to that list. Ultimately, we're talking here about sanctification, about Christ-likeness. People need to grow in their, their sanctification. They need to progress in their Christian walk. And the Lord wants to see his people overcome sin, grow in holiness, and produce true worship. But it's not just the job of the pastor to promote this type of spiritual growth or to be engaged in this spiritual work of ministry. All Christians need to be admonished and encouraged and helped. But God expects not just pastors, but all people to do that spiritual work of service, to meet these spiritual needs. And so this morning, as we seek to move the football forward in our understanding of church life. I want to further address how God expects all of us to meet the spiritual needs of one another. And to do that, I want to highlight three essential commands that give guidance on meeting 
spiritual needs in the church. Three essential commands that give guidance on meeting spiritual needs in the church. So that you will contribute to the growth of the body, not just spectate. So you can open your Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're just going to look at a single verse this morning, but it encapsulates a lot of what God expects all of his people to do. 1 Thessalonians is likely the second book written in the New Testament after Galatians. Paul founded the Thessalonian church on his second missionary journey. He went there, he preached Jesus as the Messiah. Acts 17.4 says, Some Jews believed, along with many of the God-fearing Greeks and many of the prominent leading women in the city as well. But there's a lot of hostility among the non-believing Jews. They forced Paul to flee, so he left Thessalonica. But a little later, he sent Timothy back to go shepherd these brand new believers in this brand new church. Sends Timothy back to go shepherd them and instruct them. And Paul moved on later to Corinth. At that point, Timothy returned. He gave a good report of this brand new church in Thessalonica. And so Paul writes this letter back to them at this point. And 1 Thessalonians is overall a really encouraging and uplifting letter. He writes to encourage and support their newfound faith while steering them clear from some error and misunderstanding. But he also has a lot to say about just basic Christian living in this letter. Now, these are new Christians. They need to know, like, how to live. What does the Lord expect of them? Okay, these are baby Christians. They're in this new thing called the church. Like, okay, what are we supposed to do here? Like, why are we together? Jews, Gentiles, men, women, rich, poor. What do we do? Well, Paul gives a lot of useful instructions throughout the whole letter. So read it. It's only five chapters, but for our time, we're just going to look at a single verse, a key verse near the end. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Now, you may have heard me use this verse before many times. It's a great little verse to keep in your pocket for counseling situations. But you need to know that this verse is not actually directed to pastors or elders or formal counselors. It's directed to the whole church body. He's talking to the whole church, which he references as the brethren throughout the whole letter. He's not just talking to the leaders. For example, look back at verse 12. He says, but we request, request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Clearly, you see, he's not talking to the leaders. He's talking to the church body, verse 12, telling them to appreciate their leaders. But the instructions he, he's giving here, they're for the whole church, the brethren. And so again, verse 14, right after, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So these instructions are for all the brethren, the whole church body. Paul is urging or exhorting all the members 
of the body to partake in these spiritual works and all of which still apply to all believers. Now, even these brand new baby Christians were not exempt from already getting involved in these spiritual works of service. So right off the bat, you know, especially if you've read this verse before, you're kind of familiar with this verse, but have you ever truly read it thinking it's, it's applying directly to you? This is telling you to do something. It's not just for pastors or, or counselors. Have you ever seen someone act unruly in the church? Well, well then did you admonish them? Have you seen someone who's, who's faint hearted? Did you encourage them? Or the weak, have you helped the weak? Do you even think this way? Or is your default thinking more like, hey, that's, that person's problem is not my problem. It's someone else's problem. I don't want to get involved. We pay pastors to do this kind of stuff, right? And what could I even contribute? That's wrong thinking altogether, that you are being urged to do these things as well. And let's say you had a family member, a sibling, an adult child who's going down a dark path. They're starting to make destructive choices. You, you see it's going to wreck their life. When you eventually just feel compelled, I've got to, I've got to speak. I have to say something to, to admonish them in love, to warn them. Or what if your, your sibling or, or a friend was going through a great trial and they're just, they're just beat down, they're depressed, they're discouraged. When you eventually like speak up, Say something to lift them up, lift their spirits, encourage them. These conversations might be difficult to have, but I would hope that your love and your care for your relative would be greater than that fear and that, that awkwardness because these things need to be said for their good because you love them. Well, likewise, the church is to be your spiritual family. It's not just an event venue filled with strangers, but it's a family. It's filled with your spiritual brothers and sisters. And you're called to foster a real love for the brethren. And in love, there are times where you need to speak truth into their lives. It may not be easy, but it is necessary for the building up of the body. And again, it's for everyone. Look back at verse 11, just just before. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Like these brand new Christians were already doing this stuff, but they need to keep going. And so it goes for this church. You need to continue to progress in contributing to these works of spiritual service that both you and those around you might be built up in the image of Christ. So let's go ahead and get into these three commands now. Three special commands are given in verse 14, and like they, they give a great deal of guidance. They cover a, a good portion of what the Lord wants to see among his people in the church in regard to one another. So let's consider these one by one. The first, admonish one another. Admonish one another. You see that in verse 14, admonish the unruly. This word for admonish in the Greek is nuthateo, comes from the word mind, nous, and tithemi, to put, to place. It speaks of placing things in the mind, ideas in the mind. But it came to have the meaning of, of a warning, exhorting, admonishing. 
This admonishment is not just filling someone with plain facts or simple truth, but it has as its focus how we ought to live in light of those truths. This admonishment does not have a negative connotation per se, but, but a serious connotation. It's a serious warning or exhortation to someone in, in peril. I've got a slide in our front yard. It's leaning up on an oak tree. It's like a perfectly horizontal oak tree. It just grew horizontal. It's great. And it's a great little platform that the kids can like basically walk right up and slide right down. But it's not attached yet. I just have it leaning there to see how it would fit. And the other day, Noah was going to climb on that tree and he was going to slide down. And if he had jumped on that slide, it would have just come crashing down on him. And so as he got close, I had to admonish him. I had to warn him, like, hey, don't do that. Watch out. Danger. Don't go on the slide. And likewise, you might see other believers in peril, but we're talking spiritual peril. Now, spiritual danger is someone that has veered from the way of the Lord. They've allowed sin to creep in their life. They're, they're heading down a, a darker path. And you see it. You see them wandering. So it's up to you to admonish them. It's not just go run and get the pastor or, or make someone else do it. No, you, you are the one who sees them inching toward the edge of the cliff. So at least first you go say something in love, admonish them, warn them, exhort them. Again, this word admonish, nutheteo, is the word from which we derive the term nuthetic counseling. You may have heard that before. Essentially synonymous with biblical counseling. It's counseling aimed at the heart, using God's word to change people from the inside out. But I'm telling you, this work of admonishment is not only for the biblical counselor. You know, the reason people come into the counseling office with crisis level problems is that it's because over the past five years, none of their Christian friends or fellow church members admonish them. I mean, five years ago, they weren't in crisis mode, but they were starting to slowly but surely veer from the way and to do what is right. But the people around them who are actually in their lives, no one said anything, no one admonished them, no one made them aware, no one warned them in love, exhorted them, didn't say anything because they're too scared. It's too awkward. And so it gets worse and worse. And five years later, they're in crisis mode and they do show up in the office. That sounds like the way things should be. And what about you? Are you contributing to the holiness of the body by admonishing one another? Or are you just sitting idly by, even though you might see someone near you kind of being unruly, but you don't want to say anything because you're scared? Now, at this point, I'm sure you're, you're trying to find an exception clause where like this, somehow this doesn't apply to you. But it's really just the opposite. The more you look at scripture, the more you see, you know what? There's no really escaping it. Romans 15, 14 says, he says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Also Colossians 3, 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. No one gets off the hook. We are called, we are commanded to admonish one another. 
Now, that being said, I don't want you to get the impression that Paul is advocating the Wild West, where everyone is just running around and, and slinging admonishments at one another nonstop. Don't take this to mean we're, we're supposed to be like the sin police, where we're just going around like legalistic tyrants, always pointing out what's wrong in everyone's lives. This is a very serious call to admonish one another, but its implementation is guided and balanced in Scripture. For example, here in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're just told to admonish the unruly. If someone is just immature or they're, they're already broken by their sin, that they don't need an admonishment. They need help. Also consider Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not also be tempted. Now, all admonishment must come in a spirit of gentleness and meekness and humility. Like 1 Peter 5, 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And look to yourself. Consider yourself first. Are, are you being unruly? Well, if so, you know, repent. Take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll be able to, to see clearly, take the speck out of your brother's eye. In all things, however you, you minister God's word to others, let it be characterized by love. You know, Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Any admonishment needs to be delivered with, with an overabundance of grace. Because you really just have the other person's best interests in mind. That's how it needs to be. You want to see them avoid harm and grow in Christ. But this is a real spiritual need in the body that God designed all of us to meet. So you see your brother in church, he's wrestling with lust. You don't just ignore it. You don't gossip about it. But you do admonish him. You speak to him in love, graciously, privately. You remind him, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual morality. You counsel him, you pray for him. Or maybe you see that couple and they're continuing to speak harsh words to one another. They're growing more and more bitter against one another. You see it, you don't excuse it, but you do admonish them in love, gently. But you speak to them. Like Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I know some of you are thinking like, I could never do this. Well, yeah, if you see the church as an event, or if you only ever interact with people in a pew, probably not. But you see, you have to start caring for these people as like family members, you have to get to know them, invest in their lives, develop real relationships with them, just kind of break bread together. And that's when a trust will form where, where this type of mutual admonishment, which we all really need, will naturally take place. It'll even be invited. It'll be welcome. I want you to speak into my life. If you see me varying at all, please admonish me. Speak truth to me. At the very least, let me admonish you to pursue that these types of relationships in the church, you know, both now and when the growth groups start. Let's move on to the second command. Number two, encourage one another. 
from verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. And the second command we're given here to help meet the spiritual needs of the body is to encourage. And Paul uses a rarer word for encourage here. And it carries the, the little flavor of, of consoling someone or comforting someone. But there are about four Greek words used for encouragement in the New Testament. They're all used interchangeably. And in, in essence, they're all about, you know, someone who's down, you, you lift them up. That's encouragement. And accordingly, encouragement here is to be applied to those who are faint-hearted. Literally in the Greek, this word means little-souled. It speaks of someone who's downcast, dejected, depressed. This is not the person living a rebellious life, per se. That person needs admonishment, not encouragement. But this person, they're, they're just down for a plethora of reasons. And to encourage them is to lift them up, to build them up. In fact, one of the synonyms for encouragement in the Greek means to make the soul feel good. Lifting their spirits using the word of God. And those in the world struggle to to truly encourage those who are down and depressed. They don't know what to say. They have no ultimate hope. The best they can do seems like these days is say like, maybe you should get on antidepressants. But we who are equipped with God's word should be able to do better than that because we have truth and answers and hope that can lift the soul. You start with discouragement. What might cause a fellow Christian around you to become discouraged? We're not immune to that. There can be many reasons. The loss of a loved one, prolonged illness, crushing poverty, wayward adult children, Constant marital strife, a losing battle with repeated sin. I bet most of you just identified with something on that list. Just the mention of it brings a little tinge of discouragement. And these are the harsh realities of living in a fallen world. If that's all you think about, and if that's all there is, well, then of course you're going to be depressed. But that's not all you should think about. That's not all there is. That's not all that's true. Maybe it is true that you've been suffering with the same physical affliction for three years. That's true. But that's not all that's true. It's also true that God is still sovereign. He's good. He's on his throne. He's working all things out according to his perfect will. This is a fallen world cursed with sickness and suffering, but he's working out his plan to redeem it and to restore it. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a day when all those in Christ who know him by faith will never again experience pain or sickness or sorrow or or death. And the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. All that's true as well. And so you may continue to experience your pain. It may not go away. But as you instead set your mind on things above, you focused on Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, who suffered a lot more than you and yet endured. As you focus on that, you will gain the encouragement in your soul that you need to take courage and to press on and to hold fast to the faith. You see, it's only biblical truth and and the hope of glory 
that can lift someone from the fog. But the thing is, when you are that person down in the fog, and because of the weakness of your flesh, you're not really speaking truth to yourself. You're not recalling what else is true in the moment. All you can think about is this, this trouble, this affliction, which is true. You're forgetting everything else that is true as well. And so although you may not realize it, you need other people to encourage you. From the outside, you need others to encourage you. It's very hard at times when you're down to encourage yourself, to pick yourself up. You can if you're strong in the word and in the spirit. But God has so designed the church body to be a place of mutual encouragement. Sometimes you're down in the spiritual dumps. You need others to just come alongside you, to comfort you with truth, to lift your soul by, by reminding you, hey, you know what? This, this other stuff is also true. Speak the word of God to them. Remind them of God's promises. What is true? Other times, you're the one who's riding high. Life is sweet. You don't really have any burdens. That's a time where, where you be the one to bear the burdens of others. You know, we, just, we read a little while ago, Galatians 6.1, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. What about the next verse, Galatians 6.2? It says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We're so prone to think, hey, that person's problem is not my problem. And their, their trouble, their, their cause of depression, that, that's not mine. I don't want that in my life. Well, that, that may be so in a sense, but if we're members of one another, they're part of my body, it is my problem. Uh, their, their growth is my growth. I, I want to see them lifted. And so I need to be the one to go encourage them. Listen also to Hebrews three twelve through 14. The author says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but... Encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You know, the Christian life, the Christian race, it's long, it's arduous, it's filled with trials and temptations, snares, and setbacks. But well, we tell new believers that come to faith in Christ that, yeah, you just need to, to keep that faith in Christ for as long as you live. Just hold fast to Christ for your life. However long that is, maybe the next 60 years. And say that's you. Never mind the fact that you will never see this Christ and most people will think you're crazy for believing in some imaginary person. Also, there's going to be seasons in that 60 years where people will hate you and mock you and persecute you. There's going to be seasons in that 60 years where you're going to suffer terrible health. There'll be seasons of poverty in that 60 years, relational strife. You're going to lose many loved ones in that 60 years. All these forces will conspire together over these 60 years. They're going to make you want to throw in the towel. Why should you keep following this Jesus? What has he really done for you? And when you think about it, as hard as life can be, who can endure? What enables one to endure 60 years or more? 
And the only answer, of course, is just true faith. And to whom shall we go? All those things being true, where else are we going to go? Only Christ has the words of eternal life. We have a greater hope of glory based on the assurance of his word as true. But if we are going to endure, though, if we're not going to be deceived by sin, if we're not going to be hardened, if we're not going to fall away from the living God, then we need to be reminded of what is true all the time. I mean, how often do we need the word of truth to fill our minds? Every day. And again, God designed the church to be the spiritual family where this type of encouragement takes place every day. Not just a little bit during a church service once a week. We're meant to run this race together. Oftentimes carrying people during their seasons of of affliction. And I can tell you right now, I'm not going to name names, but there are several people in this church body as we speak who are in a place of spiritual dejection. Life is hard. There's sin, there's suffering. And so are you doing anything to encourage them? Do you even know them? Do you even have the faintest idea of the people around you, what they might be going through, their needs, their spiritual needs? Do you know their burdens and struggles? You probably don't if you only ever interact with people during that one-minute greeting. Or you probably don't if you, if you come late, you leave early, you never really talk to people. But I can only hope that you're starting to see more and more things should be different in the church. That, that's not the Lord's plan. That's not what he had in mind. The, the church is not a spectator event or a solo sport. That we need to be encouraging one another. Well, lastly here, we'll finish up. Number three, the third command given to help us meet the spiritual needs of the body is to help one another, to help one another. Look again at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says, we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. And then he says, help the weak. Not everyone in the church is in the same place. We're at the same level, that the needs are diverse, but God has so designed the church and gifted people so that they might meet diverse needs. Here we see some people who are weak. The word literally means without strength. It can refer to physical weakness, but here and in similar settings, it refers to spiritual weakness. This is the one who's immature or who's doubting who's vacillating in the faith. And Paul has a lot to say elsewhere about those who are spiritually weak and immature. Oftentimes, these are new believers. They just entered the faith. They don't know better. But they come with lots of baggage from their old way of life. And and their old worldview still kind of clings to their thinking like barnacles. And this can lead them astray. It can lead them into trouble. It can cause confusion. And so these weak, new members of the body, what do they need? They don't need harsh judgment or rebuke. They don't know better. But you know what? They don't quite need encouragement as well. They need instruction. They need to be brought along. They just need some help. So help the weak. This word help means to cleave to, to hold firmly to someone, to support 
The idea is there's someone who's weak, they're faltering, and you are strong. Well, you go hold them, you, you support them, you, you lift them up, you keep them upright. Now at our house, we have 20 stairs just to get to the front door. And sometimes people visit, maybe they're, they're elderly or with a physical ailment. And I imagine they get to the bottom of the stairs, they look up, they just want to go home. But, you know, they just need a hand, so I'll go down and I'll give them a hand. I will help them up. I'll support them up the stairs. Because they're just physically, and that's okay, but they're just too weak to go it alone. And so it goes spiritually. There are seasons in life where some people, they just need help. That They're weak. They can't do it alone. And now we're talking spiritually here. Most often that the help is going to come in the form of instruction. That the immature believer just doesn't know better. And so the help they need is to know better. So you teach them God's word, instruct them, show them the way. And not long ago, we were in Colossians 1, where Paul gave his own ministry mindset, which we learned is for all Christians, all disciples. And so if you remember what was his and our goal of ministry or discipleship, Colossians 1, 28, 29 He says, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his will who works mightily within me. And we already covered the admonishing part, but key in on the teaching part. He says, teaching every man with all wisdom. It's common word, didasco, for teaching means to impart truth and that the doctrines of the faith, just the word, it needs to be passed down. We're trying to help others walk the way of the Lord, but for a lot of people, they just need to know the way of the Lord. So how are they going to know? We hope they'll just figure it out themselves. And sometimes you just think, you know, just let them figure it out themselves. Read your Bible yourself and figure it out. But I would hope that you care about that weak believer enough that you don't want them to to trip and stumble while they're trying to figure things out like you did when you were a new believer. And so you will come alongside them and help them, support them, instruct them, teach them. I mean, isn't this part of the Great Commission to take new disciples and to teach them to observe all that the Lord commanded? And so show them the way. You know, these commands... They're not complicated. They're just a matter of seeing people in the church who may be in need, whether they're unruly or faint-hearted or weak. And then it's a matter of meeting their spiritual needs by admonishing them or encouraging them or helping them. It really is that simple. And by the way, just to finish this verse though, no matter what a person is like, don't forget the ending where he says, be patient with Everyone, whether someone is unruly or faint-hearted or weak, be patient with them. We're trying to meet spiritual needs, but at the same time, we're not the Holy Spirit. You can't force people to change. So just be patient, show grace, but be active. And that's the real takeaway here. We've been considering what Scripture says about church life for three weeks now. What is the church? What's the function of the church? And so far, nothing suggests being a spectator is a part of it. 
And just the opposite, you are to be an active participant. How? Well, consider your spiritual gifts, but also just just be aware of the spiritual needs of those around you and then just seek to meet them as you're able. You've got to change your mentality and no longer be the person who sees someone in need and says, someone else will do that. Someone else will talk to that person. Someone else will take care of that person. But instead, you see that person in need, spiritual need, practical need, whatever. Your first thought is, oh, well, I see that need. I should go do something about it. If able, I should go meet that need. Of course, I'm fully aware of human nature and, and how people operate. And for a variety of reasons, you know, what we studied this morning from admonishing to encouraging to helping, you're probably not going to do if you come to church as a spectator. That these spiritual works of service, they're correlated to real relationships. And real relationships, in turn, are correlated to time. It's just time spent together. There's no substitute for just life lived together. And that produces the type of closeness where these spiritual needs are seen and then met. I know in America, we love our our me time and, and our family time. And it's not inherently wrong all the time, but who's going to give some time to God's family? Who's going to care for God's family? Do you love God's family? Are you a part of God's family? Then just give some of your time to God's family. Let yourself continue to be challenged to engage more in the life of the church, which is not primarily about spectating, but serving. Like Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Just draw near, draw near to God and draw near to his people, which is his will, the church. And I tell you, as you do so, you will find yourself growing. You'll find this church growing and you'll find a powerful witness to the world that that Christ has come and he is real. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for time in the word. And it's convicting, but we need to be convicted. Your word is living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It it pierces us. It cuts us open. It does convict us. There are things we need to see. We need to be informed of what your word says about this thing called the church, what we're even doing here, how we use this time. And we need to be more engaged in the personal side of things, Lord. We, We do well corporately. We thank you for that. And we will continue. But help us all to, to bear this conviction and turn it into change when it comes to engaging in, in, these, in the life of the church, meeting the, the spiritual needs of others. And there's so many. I can't bear them all. A couple pastors can't bear them all. We must be bearing the burdens of one another, encouraging, admonishing, helping one another. So convict all of us just to do our part, to take another step toward living out the life you've given us. You've given us your spirit. You've given us spiritual gifts. We are equipped. It's just a matter of of changing our thinking and then our doing that we might now serve and not just spectate. Let this bear fruit and cause great change to your glory, to our own good and growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.